Well, good morning. Uh, before we get into our countercultural series again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and following, I just wanted to let you know, um, Courtney and I are going to be giving our uh, kind of second installment of our Say Yes commitment. Uh, it's going to be, uh, it's a risk for us, uh, $5,000 we had pledged, uh, like many of us, right, we had pledged kind of in the beginning to give an upfront amount. And we said, sit before the Lord and ask him what's he calling you to say yes to, uh, that he might provide for us, the church, a permanent space here in Silver Spring to seek our roots and get the gospel out for generations to come. So we, we all prayed, right? And we said, uh, Lord, what are you calling us to say yes to, kind of upfront and then over this next year from June to June? So we did that, and it was a risk. We said, okay, we're going to give 10000 up front, and then we're going to give 10000 over this next year. And I, I share that to say, I'm in this with you. And for some of you, that's, that's a small amount. For some of you, that's a huge amount. And whatever it is the Lord called you to say yes to, we, we are just saying, man, keep at it uh, the rest of this year. So we're about to drop that uh, first 5000 that second half of our commitment that the Lord would uh, provide for our church altogether a permanent space here to minister the gospel for generations to come, to, to plant churches and see the good news go out. Uh, that's why, man, what a joy, right, to see new members say, uh, we're in for the work of the gospel here. Uh, what a joy it was a couple weeks to hear uh, the Vulnerable Children's Ministry and what they're doing and how they've got this uh, packing of frozen meals coming up to support families who are caring for foster kids. Uh, what a joy it was They say, uh, hey, let's tackle more than 50 kids for Angel Tree uh, where their, their parents are in prison. We can give them a ton of gifts this Christmas. Man, what a joy to be in the work of the gospel with you and to say, okay, let's sink our roots here permanently uh, for the sake of the gospel for generations to come. So uh, if you made a commitment, just keep up with it as we head towards June of this coming year. I want to let you know $950,000 has already been given. Like, can we clap for that? That's amazing. Uh, where we are right now, we, we, uh, Eagle Bank went under contract with that other group, and, and they got it. So that was a huge bummer, right? We were a little late for that one, but the Lord is sovereign in his timing. Uh, then we looked at another um, building, downtown Silver Spring, and it was a little too small for us. We probably could only fit up 100 or so folks uh, for worship on a Sunday morning in there. It just wasn't going to work. Uh, and so we passed on that one, and we're just praying. So pray with us. Uh, let's all be praying, asking the Lord to provide the right space and the right time. All right. So uh, that's that. You can snag a Say Yes uh, packet in the back if you were not here with us when we did that this summer. Let me pray, and we will get into this text this morning. Uh, it's a special one, and, and it's a sticky one. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would meet us this morning as we look into your word. We pray that we would be a people who live in a countercultural way, who swim upstream, who drive against traffic, because you have radically transformed our lives by your grace. God, would we be a people who live with a singular desire to please you, to serve you, to walk in step with you, to follow you, even though that might make our life uncomfortable. We know it's for a greater joy, greater purpose that you've called us to live for your son who has rescued us, approved us by grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we're in the middle of Paul kind of defending his ministry. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they came to Thessalonica and, and kind of within a month's time, everything was flipped up on its head. 
Uh, the city found itself in chaos because they came preaching a gospel uh, and, and a king who was different than Caesar. And, and people started to worship this King Jesus, and it, it kind of flipped everything upside down. But then Paul, Timothy, and Silas left town because, like what happened in Philippi, they saw we're probably going to get imprisoned and beaten and maybe killed. So they left and they went to the towns uh, right next door and kind of kept on their movement. But then the Thessalonians were like, what are you doing? This is kind of kiss and run. Like, uh, uh, can we trust you? Is your gospel true? And, and Paul then steps back in the book of Thessalon uh, Thessalonians in this letter back to the church of Thessalonica. And he defends uh, their ministry among the Thessalonians. Uh, we said uh, last week he began with this idea that uh, he lived among them with a singular desire, and that was to please God. Why? Because God had already approved him by grace, had already made him a son by grace, had already entrusted him with the work of the gospel, his eternal purpose by grace. So now he's going to live his whole life to please God in response to his approval by God. And that's an amazing thing for Paul. Because if we know Paul's story, uh, he's over here killing Christians before he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. And when he looks back at his life, he says, I was really the chief of sinners. I, I was uh, sinner number one. So when God pours his grace on him in Acts chapter 9, when he, uh, Paul is on the road to Damascus and, and Jesus steps in over the threshold of Paul's life, opens the door and comes on in, it radically transforms everything for Paul. It'll transform the way then that Paul steps over the threshold of every relationship into every relationship in his life. The way he enters every room will be radically different now. The way he enters every relationship will be radically different. Everything has changed for Paul. Uh, so what we'll look at this morning is, is we're going to kind of look at uh, this approach to or the way we step into every relationship, every room, every sphere of influence we have, and how it is uh, radically reshaped uh, in this way that we now do all we can do for the sake of the gospel, and we leave the results to God. We do all we can do for the sake of the gospel, and we leave the results to God because God has broken into our lives by grace. He's approved us. He's entrusted us. He's given us a singular desire to please him. So now, what's it look like when we step into every relationship? And, and Paul will continue in his defense of his ministry in Thessalonica, and in doing so, he'll say, this is how I came to you. This is how I stepped into this relationship with you. This is how I lived. This is what it looked like. This is what I said. It changed the way he entered the relationship, his relationship with the Thessalonians. And it changes the way we step into every relationship in our lives. And then if there's time, I'm going to step back and we'll do this little bit of an aside. And we'll go deeper into a little bit of stuff in this text, which is a bit uncomfortable. All right, so uh, let's get after it. We are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and following. Uh, how do we step into uh, every relationship, doing all we can do for the sake of the gospel and leaving the results to God? Doing all we can do for the sake of the gospel takes shape like this. We work hard, we live holy, and we share explicitly. 
To do all we can do for the sake of the gospel looks like this. When we step into a relationship with someone who doesn't yet know Christ, when we step into the room where there are people who don't yet know Christ, when we step into our spheres of influence uh, with folks who don't yet know Christ, we, we work hard for the sake of the gospel. We live holy for the sake of the gospel. And we share explicitly. We do all we can do for the sake of the gospel. First, we work hard. Look what Paul says in verse 9. When he came to Thessalonica, he worked really hard. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. We worked night and day. We worked really Hard. Uh, here, here's what Paul is talking about. We see how Paul worked in Acts chapter 18. This is after uh, chapter 17 when he spent time in Thessalonica. Now he moves into 18 in chapter uh, 18 of Acts. He says this, I, Paul, had left Athens, this is Luke writing about Paul's journeys, and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And remember, this is history. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade as them, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. Let's see what Paul does day and night is first in the evenings, most likely, he makes tents. He uh, puts together tents so that he can sell them uh, and make a living that the Thessalonians don't have to pay him to do the ministry of the gospel, which he is there to do. He talks about this in 2 Thessalonians when he's talking to them uh, in verse 3 in 2 Thessalonians, or chapter 3, verse 7. He says it this way. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. And see, he says, uh, when we came to you, we worked night and day. What was the reason? Why did he make tents like this so that he could uh, support himself and his livelihood? That we might not be a burden to you. That we might remove every barrier that, uh, get, that keeps the gospel from getting from me to you. I, I, I would work really hard as a tent maker so you don't have to provide me any finances because we didn't want to be a burden to you because we wanted nothing to get in the way of the good news of the gospel from getting from me to you. We didn't want any barriers there. So we worked so hard to remove those barriers. How hard are you working to remove the barriers of the gospel in your life? How hard are you working to remove the barriers from the gospel getting from you to someone else in your life or my life? I see, often there's a relational tensions or a lack of relational depth that is a barrier from keeping the gospel from moving from one relationship to another. Uh, maybe it's someone in your family. You've been living in this conflict for years, and, and this conflict keeps the good news of the gospel from going from you to them because you aren't even talking to each other. Or maybe you and your neighbor have this petty argument over someone parking in this spot or that spot or, or, or not returning this tool or doing this to their yard. And, and that kind of petty conflict is keeping a barrier up between you and them that the gospel might go to them. 
There's often relational barriers of tension and conflict. Or maybe it's just uh, there's no relational depth in your relationships. Uh, you sit next to this gal at work, but she's just a co-worker. You don't know her name. You don't know her interests. You don't know anything about her family. But, but there's a relational depth that must occur for uh, the, the, the bridge of the gospel to get over to them. How hard are we working that all barriers would be removed? In this area, there's a huge barrier of perception. The way people view Christians is a huge barrier for the gospel getting to these people uh, who think uh, that we are uh, not thoughtful or not logical or or unwise or or, or we are in this certain political camp or vote this certain way or think this certain thing about race or injustice or equality or, or, or whatever it might be. We have this perception of who we are as Christians and how we treat homosexuals or how we interact with others of a different race than us that that keeps the gospel from coming from me to you. How hard are we working to break these things down? Uh, Maybe for you it's just uh, the barrier is you don't feel equipped. I just don't know how to share the gospel. I don't know how to talk about the scriptures or, or talk about a relationship with God that we were made to enjoy and how it's been broken. I, I don't know how to share the gospel. What's keeping you from knowing? Probably just some good old-fashioned hard work. <laughs> we do this at work, don't we? If we have to learn a new skill or attack a new problem, we, we learn, we work hard, we read thousands of pages. We take leadership classes. We get better at what we're doing. Why? Because it's worth it. And we're offering a Thrive next service right under uh, here in the Thrive room, right? Uh, you can go down and, 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 and grow in your ability to share the good news of the gospel. Might we be a people who work hard to remove every barrier that keeps the good news from getting from me to you? As we do all we can do for the sake of the gospel, the first thing we do is we work hard, as Paul says. When we came into this relation with you, we worked our tails off, verse 9, to remove all barriers. But sometimes the biggest barrier is you, is me. And that's why Paul says what he says next. Uh, He works hard to remove all barriers, but then he realizes that often the biggest barrier it's me it's you it's ourselves because you are witnesses and god also of how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers see sometimes the way we live invalidates the message we share sometimes the way we live invalidates the message we share and Paul, when he comes, he says, when we came to you, we, we were holy, we were blameless. Our conduct towards you, uh, as God knows and can testify, was, was a, a holy and blameless conduct. We treated you well. Uh, within Christian circles, I don't know if you kind of run within Christian circles at all, but uh, there's kind of uh, the rise and fall of Mars Hill. It's this uh, podcast that's out right now. Uh, Christianity Today put it out. And it, it kind of um, tells the story of Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill and, and this uh, uh, church in Seattle that, that blew up in, in terms of uh, amazing impact. And, and then it fell apart. And it captures the story of the pastor there and really shows some pretty grievous sin in his life. 
And we look at that and say, man, that really kind of, the way he treated women, the way he treated his staff, the way he uh, most likely lived at home, it invalidates a lot of the message he was sharing for folks, right? Or, or, or we hear of Bill Hybels, a big old megachurch pastor in Chicago. And then we hear about his private life and, and what happened in his marriage and how he was unfaithful. And we say, dang. We hear about Ravi Zacharias. You see, the guy, man, he is an amazing apologist for the gospel and did a ton of work in missions. And, and then we hear of his private life and his relationship with women and, and, and massage parlor, parlors. We just say, oh, my gosh. Uh, but then we think of our Christian co-worker and the way that he or she speaks and, or how lazy they are or how sloppy their work is. And then we get a little even closer to home when we think about ourselves. And the things we say and the things we don't say, the things we do and the things we don't do, and, and how we treat our wife and our kids and how we treat our coworkers and the work that we do. And we say, oh, man. That's why when Paul steps in, he says, the way we lived among you, uh, the, the, the way we walked uh, validated what we said. We were blameless, holy. I remember uh, it was in middle school. Uh, I was in gym class, sitting in the gym with one of them stinky gym jerseys on. You used to have to wear a uniform in gym, and, and you never washed it. I never brought it home, and it just stunk. You're middle schooler, right? And um, I'm sitting there, and, and like in most gym classes, I end up doing my homework. So I'm sitting there doing my homework against the wall, and, and Jesse, uh, this other kid in sixth grade, comes and sits next to me, and he goes, oh, is that your English homework? I'm like, yeah, and he goes, can I copy it? And at this point, I just started following Jesus. Actually, it's about seventh grade, and, and I'm like, no. He's like, What? And I'm like, I didn't know what's up. Uh, well, I'm a Christian, and I don't do that. And, and he's like, oh, my gosh. And he, like, gets up and walks away. And then I remember at Mary Washington, I, I'm playing lacrosse, and, and um, it, it's uh, my junior year, turned 21, and, and, and I go out, and, and the guys are like, you're finally going to have a beer with us. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to. They call me Ned Flanders, right, which is uh, this character in The Simpsons. <laughs> it's like, well, you got to watch The Simpsons to explain him, but. So I go, we're, we're at Hard Times Cafe, right? And then we're having all-you-can-eat wings, and I have a beer. And then they're like, you going to have another? I'm like, no. And then, well, you're just going to have one, right? Like, no, come on, get to have some fun with us. Have three, four, ten, twenty, have, come on. And I just kind of remember living a little differently through life. And people scratching their heads and saying, why? Didn't always get it right. And we're going to return to some of this in the aside at the end here and say some important things that need to be said. But, you know, Aristotle, when, when he writes in Poetics and Rhetoric in this book, he, he talks about, well, three ways to convince people, right? I'll just let him say it. The modes of persuasion furnished by the spoken word, there are three kinds. First kind depends on the personal character of the speaker. The second, on putting the audience into a certain frame of mind or emotions. And the third, 
on the proof or apparent proof provided by the words of the speech itself. So you've got logos, pathos, and ethos, right? Logos is this logical way to explain the argument so people are like, yes, that, that data makes sense, I agree with you, right? Then you've got pathos to, to move someone emotionally, right? So they say, yes, I feel that with you, and I'll make a decision of the will. Then you've got ethos, which is the character of the speaker, as he or she speaks, that you say, I can trust that person, and, and he speaks of this later uh, in his arguments. He says this, there are three things which inspire confidence in the orator's own character. The three, namely, that induce us to believe a thing apart from any proof of it are these, good sense, good moral character, and good will. Uh, this person has a good sense about them. Uh, I smell it, right? Or, or they've got good will towards me. They want the best for me. Uh, and they have good moral character. I can trust them. And he says the strongest of the ways to persuade someone is ethos, the, the character or the trustworthiness of the person that is speaking. People are smelling our lives all the time. They are watching us. If they know you're a Christian, particularly then, can I trust them? Are the things they say, could it be true? Can I see it in the way that they live? 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 15 says it this way. Have no fear uh, of them. Do not be troubled, but in your hearts set apart Christ as holy or as Lord. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. When someone watches our lives and then asks, why are you living the way you're living? Why do you have the hope that you have? I, I see something different in you. The way you live says you might believe something a bit different than me that leads to life. And, and, and what you say might be true. Like I said, we're going to return to this idea of living holy in our aside at the end if there's time. We work hard. We live holy, and we share explicitly. Notice what Paul says, uh, for you know, verse 11, uh, when we were with you, we were like a father with his children. We talked last week about just this deep affection as a mother, as he says, they were mothers among them. As a father, we were fathers among you. Listen to what he says now, verse 12. We exhorted each one of you. We encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, the verbs are verbal verbs, right? We exhorted you, we encouraged you, we, we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You have a, a God who has called you into his kingdom and into his glory. He's made you one of his own. He wants you to walk in his ways. If we go back up to verse 9, we see explicitly what Paul is talking about. When we worked among you, we weren't a burden to you. Why? Because we proclaimed to you the gospel. Of God. We wanted to share explicitly with words who Jesus is and what he's done. We wanted you to know uh, who has changed our lives by grace. So we extorted, we encouraged, we charged, we proclaimed the gospel to you. We opened our mouths. 
We didn't just work hard so we'd have the opportunity and we'd remove all barriers. We didn't just live holy so that we would have this different kind of life, but then we shared explicitly with words who Jesus is, what he's done, and how he's transformed our lives. All through the book of Acts, where uh, Luke is telling the story of Paul going from town to town to town and Peter and others, this little phrase keeps showing up. It, uh, Philip, when he's talking with a eunuch, this, this uh, Ethiopian eunuch, he's about to share the good news with him. And Philip says, uh, or the text says, uh, Philip opened his mouth. <laughs> Uh, then a couple chapters later, uh, Paul it says he's standing before this crowd and he opened his mouth. We so often live with shut mouths. <laughs> with the greatest news in the world. Of a God who embraces us regardless of our past mistakes. Of a God who gives us the eternal purpose regardless that we live for the, the momentary pleasures of the world. Of a God who makes us sons and daughters even though we're running headlong away from him. A God who rescues us from hell and gives us eternal life. This is the message we have. This is the medicine we have for those who are dying around us. We can live differentiated lives, but man, we got to share the good news. If we don't talk, if we don't share with words, we're just a mystery to people. I wonder, I wonder why she lives that way. She, man, she's amazing the way she's generous and, and how excellent she lives at work and how she keeps ascending the ladder but still serving everyone beneath her. Man, amazing. If you don't say a peep, you just remain a mystery. There's this gal in our church who's just ascending the corporate ladder the whole time, serving people below her with generosity and care, and living with impeccable character. In the, in the articles they write about her in their national news, they say she lives for Jesus, and it's in a super secular context. And you just say, praise God. Euangelion, gospel, it's the Greek word, just means good news, news. How do you know news other than you share it with words? It's good news. This is what's happened. This is who Jesus is and what he's done. If the gospel is true, if hell is real, and if our foundations are shaking today after the two years we've had, Man, we ought to open our mouths. If the gospel is true and hell is real and our foundations have shaken and everyone realized politics can't save us, education can't save us, we can't save us, we need a different Savior, man, we ought to open our mouths with the good news of the gospel. What an opportunity we have. So as Paul, Silas, and Timothy step into every relationship here, they are working hard, they're living holy, and they are sharing explicitly. They're doing all they can do that the good news of Christ would go out. But then they leave the results to God. They leave the results to God. Notice what happens in the next couple verses. First, there are those who receive. Verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. 
And you notice what Paul says there. He says, uh, when you heard what we were talking about with the good news of Jesus and what he's done, uh, you received this as the very word of God himself. You believed as believers. You, you received Christ uh, so much so that you became imitators of the other churches in Judea and, and even so much so that you suffered uh, for the good news. We, we knew that you received it. But, but look what Paul said at the beginning of that. We also thank God constantly for this. And then what Paul does is he steps back from it. He says, what we do, we, like, we lived holy, we worked hard, right? We, all this kind of stuff. But what we do, we thanked God. Why do we thank God? Because we realized this wasn't something we could do. We couldn't make you receive the gospel. God himself stepped in, opened your eyes, you cling to Christ, you believed in him to the point that you became imitators of the other church, you even suffered for him. Thank God, God, you did something amazing here. The results, they didn't claim the results, take credit. They said, to God be all the glory. Thank our God. But then some would reject as well. Verse 14, for you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. And displease God and oppose all of mankind, that's another word for all, everyone else other than Jews, the Gentiles, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So Paul just kind of tells the truth here of what occurred when uh, he came in to preach the gospel, right? First to his own people, he's, he's Jewish, he loves the Jewish people. He says in Romans, I wish I could be cast into hell so that my countrymen, my brothers and sisters, uh, my fellow Jews could be saved. So he comes to town to town sharing, but then uh, the Jews, by and large, were rejecting him and rejecting his message of Jesus. And, and then the Gentiles jumped in too, right? And, and particularly in Thessalonica, which had a ton of Gentiles as well. They're, they're persecuting the Thessalonican church, rejecting the gospel. Uh, Paul puts his thumb on it. Uh, the, 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 uh, the Jews had handed over Christ to be crucified over to Rome. So Rome had a hand as well. And then they crucified the Savior, and as they had done with the prophets before him. And he says, but God has stored up his justice, his wrath. He, he said, either you will pay for your own sins... Or Jesus will suffer the wrath of God in your place. Either God the Father will crush the Son by grace in our place. Or God's wrath will fall on us for saying, thanks for that thing you did to your own Son when you crucified Him in my place, but no thanks, I don't want it. He says, fine, then you will receive the wrath of God on your heads, Jew or Gentile or anyone who rejects the Savior. So again, Paul says uh, there are some who receive and there are some who reject. I'm going to hit these, uh, this aside. That's, that's your sermon, right? There it is. That, uh, work hard for the sake of the gospel. Uh, live holy that our lives would validate the, uh, the message of the gospel. And, and then share explicitly and leave the results to the Lord. Uh, some will receive and some will reject. Aside, number one, that's tied to living holy. Because it's a little weird when Paul says this, right? We, uh, we lived holy among you. We were blameless and pure. Amazing, weren't we? <laughs> 
He's really just sharing bluntly how they lived. They did live generously and holy among them. But, uh, but to live with a false holiness or a, a false humility even or a false blamelessness, well, that's kind of as invalidating of the gospel as actually living uh, an unholy life. To pretend like we don't have sin, right? To, uh, and, and this is one thing that we sometimes do in our holy living. We, we hide so that it looks like we're holy. We say, all oh, Christians are supposed to live a certain way, and I know what I say and what I do and what I've done and, and what I think and what motivates me, and I'm not going to share that because I, I want to live holy, and I'm gonna, maybe I'll do better to become holy, and, and I'll just do that privately, and I'll kind of fight sin on my own, or, or man, I'm just so ashamed of this, and I don't want to, uh, you to see my unholiness, so I'll, I'll back up and I'll hide it. I'll, I'll put a facade up. Don't do that. That'll kill you. That'll invalidate the gospel as well. You know, Paul is so wild uh, through this whole life, and this is why it's important to read the whole scriptures and let them interpret the scriptures. He, he says things like I mentioned earlier in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, I'm the worst of sinners, the chief sinner. But he gets uh, specific too, right? In Romans chapter 7, he, he says, in Romans 7, he's like, I do things I don't want to do, and I don't do things that, that uh, I should do. And he's like, dang it, I'm just falling so short in Romans chapter 7. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he's like, oh, I groan. I, I'm, I'm not who I one day will be. I'm just falling so short over and over again. He's just completely explicit over and over again with his own sin and shortcoming. He doesn't hide it. Put up a facade which will also invalidate the gospel and kill you in the process. He shares his sin, which highlights the gospel and also is the path towards holiness because then the good news of being accepted by being forgiven, by being blameless in Christ can transform us. So aside number one is don't hide in order to look holy, in order to, quote, live holy. Aside number two is this. We don't live holy, do we? <laughs> Romans chapter 3 talks about it. There's not one of us holy. Not a single one of us. All of us fall short of the glory of God. No one seeks the Lord. No, not one. <laughs> it's the bad news of the gospel. Why we need a Savior. And the reality is even after Christ, uh, there's so much unholiness in our life. And what do we do as individuals when, when we're a Driscoll or a Hybels or a, a Ravi Zacharias or a me or a you? What do we do? The New Testament uh, is clear about this. We confess our sin. We name it. We don't hide from it. We don't, we don't put up a facade and pretend we're holy. We confess it. We name it. We say, this is what I said. That's why we do it every Sunday. This is what I said. This is what I did not say, which I should have said. This is what I thought. This is my impure motives. This is how I treated you, which was wrong. We confess. We name it. Then we, we, we repent from it. We say, I'm going to turn from that sin. I'm going to cling to Christ. I love him. I want to serve him. I want to follow. I'm going to embrace his grace that he's given for me. He was crushed on the cross in my place. His holiness was given to me. His blamelessness was given to me. I'm going to cling to him. Then we rejoice. Praise God we're sons and daughters by grace. And then in that, we restore and we obey. We walk out this new life compelled by the grace of Christ, compelled by the love of Christ, compelled by the fact that we are approved, blameless, and pure in Christ. 
But what happens when corporately we don't live holy? I mean, this one, here's a great example, right? You read this passage, uh, verses 15 and following, and, and it sounds like he's being anti-Semitic. And we see this uh, kind of uh, narrative, this wart on the, the nose of the church for years of anti-Semitism, right? Uh, all the way back to the church fathers. And I had all these quotes I was going to share with you, and there's not enough time for them. But trust me, they're there. Chrysostom, uh, back in 386, just a few hundred years after Paul is writing here, just a couple hundred miles from the town he's writing in, just talks about uh, Jews and the kind of language that you just cringe at. A church father. So what happens when somebody stands up in the name of the church saying things that are completely antithetical to the gospel? I mean, it continues all the way uh, through the Middle Ages with the Fourth Lateran Council. And you read all these things that are put out. Canon 68, read that one. Oh, my gosh. Compelling Jews to wear different clothes so we can differentiate Christians from Jews and treat people differently. Or then Luther in the Reformation in the 1540s, he, he, he writes this. Oh, man, what's it titled? Uh, because even the title uh, makes you kind of choke. On the Jews and their lies. Whew. Well, what happens when, when I'm sitting with my neighbor just two weeks ago? African-American gal and uh, her family, who's just deep, close family friends of ours, and then uh, this other uh, white family and their kids, and we're all just hanging out, two, two, uh, three neighbors just hanging out around the fire. And, and the one says, remember a couple months ago when we came, how deep that conversation got? And I remember. I remember a couple months ago because we started talking about sin. And then uh, the, the one gal uh, just says this thing that, oh, man, it hits. And, and then uh, my African-American dear friend and neighbor says, I'll never believe in a religion that put my ancestors on slave trips, ships. Now, you can throw up a facade, right? You can say, so you can say that's not the church. We, look, we let out on the civil rights movement. We let out against slavery. And, and true, there were some Christians who let out. Frederick Douglass, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, right? Let out. But there was a whole bunch of mess and nastiness. And to put up a facade and, and not to confess and name our history. Not to repent and turn from and say, Oh, man, I am so sorry for the church. Actually, do you know Jesus weeps over this with you? To talk about the apathy of the evangelical church through the civil rights movement. Where Dr. MLK writes his letters uh, from a Birmingham jail just calling out the apathy of the church at large. Look, yeah, sure, there were some white pastors uh, leading out on the charge too, right? Like, look, this is a, a mixed history, but let's be honest that it's a mixed and also has some ugly warts on it. But then together as a new humanity together to rejoice in the grace of our God together. And to then not just stop there, but to begin to restore and obey together as a new humanity is talked about in Ephesians 2 together. This is what I love about the well. God is bringing together a new humanity here in Christ. A new humanity which will shine just so brilliantly and differently in Silver Spring and the surrounding areas for the sake of the gospel. But we can be honest about our warts too. 
because the gospel is big enough, forgiveness is big enough, and that's what binds us together in Christ as men and women from all tribes, tongues, and nations as we're going to worship together in Revelation chapter 7. Let's get a taste of it now. It's all by grace. Uh, even in the midst of slavery and uh, the civil rights movement, the, the, the African-American church takes root here in America in a strong way. As Man, Frederick Douglass, I reread his uh, narrative this past week and, and even quotes in it where he's like, at age 13, he comes to Christ. And he says, my chief desire was to see uh, everyone around me come to taste the grace of Christ. He says, even slave owners. It's all by grace. Look, we ought to work hard. We ought to live holy. we got to share explicitly. But what the Lord does is He chases us down, and by grace, He rescues fools like us, and He rescues through fools like us by the work of His Son, whose body was broken for fools like us, whose blood was spilled for fools like us to make us sons and daughters, to bring us in and give us the most amazing message anyone's ever shared with anybody else. So let's rejoice this morning. If you are trusting in Christ, would you rejoice in the work of Jesus whose body was broken for your sin? whose blood was spilled, the wrath of God was poured on Christ instead of you to give you the good news of the gospel and to make you a son or daughter, who was resurrected to newness of life that we could be a people together who, who walk in obedience and restore what was wronged and make right what was wrong and, and mend what was broken together in Christ as we wait for his return. And if you're not yet trusting in Christ, man, would you receive him this morning? Would you just trust him this morning? Don't take communion, but, but instead take, receive Jesus this morning. Because he loves you so deeply. He loves you so deeply. Let's take and eat and drink and remember who our Savior is and what he's done for fools like us. And would that compel us to work hard, to live holy, and to share explicitly the good news of the gospel. Let's take and eat together. Mm -hmm.